2: Hello everyone, I hope you all enjoyed the break in our normal proceedings for the Great Sea Fight special on the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. If you haven't listened to it, please do so. There are three separate episodes, one explaining the events, one offering an analysis of the battle, and a final one offering the Spanish view. But now things are back to normal and we begin as ever by catching up on the poor sailors of the whale ship Swan, trapped in the ice off the west coast of Greenland in the new year of 1837. This reading comes from a transcription of her logbook, made specially for the podcasts. So as you listen to each small reading, do bear in mind that you're creating a little bit of history in your own right, as you're the first people ever to hear this being read out. The original logbook is kept in the collections of the Caird Library in the National Maritime Museum in London. Life trapped in the ice is as awful as ever, but it's possible that the first breath of spring is
1: in the air. Monday, 20th of February. The whole of these 24 hours light winds and clear weather with the same intense cold. What degree of cold we are unable to ascertain, not having a spirit thermometer on board but 37 degrees below zero being the farthest limit that we know. The land has shown itself very plain this day, the ship not being more than 30 miles off. Four Island Point, Mare Island. Disco and other places being quite bold and distinct to the view. A 180 gallon shake cut up for fuel. Sunday 26th of February. Strong breezes with the same intense cold the fore part of this day. At noon the mercury in the thermometer rose to 25 degrees below zero, a change that is felt by each of us. The ship has drifted during the last breeze but it is now brought up very probably by the bergs off Hare Island. As soon as the weather gets clearer we expect to see this reef not far off. Divine service performed between decks morning and evening as usual when the labours of our pious shipmate are duly appreciated by the thoughtful part of the crew. Thermometer 25 degrees below zero. Latitude by observation, 70 degrees by 30 north.
2: This week we are tackling the important history of race relations in America through the lens of riverboat excursions for the Chinese community of New York in the 19th century. It's a truly fascinating subject and I spoke to the excellent Dr. Marika Platter to find out more. Marika studies what low-income New Yorkers did for fun outdoors during the 19th century. In this era of staggering inequality, working class and impoverished people and people of colour often lived amidst biological and industrial pollution that wealthier and whiter urbanites were increasingly able to avoid. Her research considers ways that the most vulnerable of New Yorkers used their limited free time to escape to environments that contrasted with their daily conditions. She follows the city's workers as they walked to public parks in their neighbourhoods, took ferries and streetcars to beer gardens and pleasure grounds, and boarded steamboats headed to waterfront excursion groves. By recovering these sites and how urbanites used them, she's able to broaden the story of nature's role in human life. Here she is. Hi Marika.
3: Hi Sam.
2: How are you doing? You're right.
3: I'm, I'm doing all right.
2: Well, we're talking today, aren't we? Because I came across a, a wonderful little article you wrote, and I'm actually just for everyone listening, um, I'm going to read out the beginning of this article because it's what's an amazingly alluring art, uh, start. <laughs> On a bright June morning in 1883, a boat flying the red and yellow Chinese flag left a pier in lower Manhattan and steamed up the Hudson River. On board were hundreds of Chinese-American men who attended missionary Sunday schools. It's it's such a brilliant opening sentence because it opens up like a ridiculous amount of questions, which I was hoping you'd be able to help me answer. What's going on here? Great. Well,
3: that is why I'm here. Um, these men were taking what uh, what was known as a steamboat excursion. Uh, These were trips that were leaving from uh, New York City, lower Manhattan generally, and traveling up to 50 miles um, on the waterways around the city. Um, And so so this is one of those. Um, And um, this particular excursion was uh, hosted by Chinese-American Sunday school students, and they were They'd organized this trip as a kind of thank you for the white women who taught them English and Bible studies as part of these missionary Sunday schools.
2: You say students. Are, they, are these adult students? Are they kids? What age group are they?
3: They are adults. Yes. Um, but I'm glad you asked that question because the newspapers often infantilize them, talked about them as kind of young and naive. And part of that was to to kind of um, make it a little bit less taboo that they were forming relationships with these white women.
2: Okay, um, that, that's that's kind of a complicated <laughs> by story. So yes. the first point I think we, we need to pick to up on is want. is um, so we've got these students, adult students, going out on a day trip up the Hudson. And you mentioned newspapers there. So how do we know about this?
3: And yeah, newspapers is the main uh, way that we know about about these trips. Um, Excursions were in the news um all the time. They were they were kind of working class holidays and uh all the city newspapers loved to write about them as kind of drunken and boisterous affairs. Um they would write about riots on board, sex at the parks were and the groves where the these, these boats would dock. Um and then these excursions by the Who paid the China- for them?
2: If they were the working class, who paid for them? Were, there, were they were they people, wealthy people putting up the cash?
3: No, it was actually cheap enough. Um, if you had enough people on one of these boats, it could be very affordable to, to rent, rent the boats. Um, uh-huh. so, so pretty much these steamboats would be just crammed full of people. Um, this is a time before regulation. So um, there are people just, there are way too many people on these boats. But because of that, um, the trips could be uh, very
2: affordable. Okay, so we've got a boat full of Chinese people. So it's but it's it's newsworthy, not just because it's an excursion, even though you said excursions are newsworthy. So it's double newsworthy, this one, because it's full of Chinese people.
3: Absolutely. At this time, uh, white Americans uh, are really they are fascinated by Chinese people. They also um, this is the era of Chinese exclusion. So there's this extreme hatred and xenophobia that's mounting. Um, and so so these these particular excursions had extra, extra print.
2: So let's go back to that Chinese xenophobia. So it's a it's the 1880s. And there is there's a serious political problem in America, isn't there, between the Americans and the Chinese? What's going on there?
3: Yeah. Well, this this had been um, this xenophobia had been growing for quite some time. Uh, there had been Chinese people living in New York um, since at least the, the 1820s. Um, and, but as time passed, there was more and more animosity growing. Uh, when we hear about xenophobia against Chinese people, the stories generally located in the American West, where there were massacres, massive mass expulsions, and 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 the working class movement, the labor movement, really targeted Chinese laborers as um, as as kind of scapegoats for the all of um, all of the the economic problems that white workers were facing. Um, So even though this is a complicated time, industrial capitalism is rising, Um, mechanization is breaking up the labor process so that workers are indispensable. There are immigrants from all over the world coming to the US and employers are taking advantage of that to hire whoever they can pay the least. So this is a complicated problem. Wages are being driven down it's not because of Chinese people, but Chinese people but they're getting the
2: blame, aren't they?
3: Absolutely, right. So they're totally scapegoats. So they're a smaller population of workers, but um, white workers are aligning against them, and politicians are taking advantage of this also because it's sort of displacing economic problems onto this other group. So there, there are these stereotypes at the time that um, Chinese workers are like machines. They're, they eat rats, they, they will sleep anywhere, and so employers are hiring them because of their, um, just, just their willingness to accept no wages, terrible living conditions. Mm. Um, and so, and then there's also this idea that people from China could never be Americans, that they were kind of permanent aliens. They were never, gonna, um, never going to be part of this society. They were never going to belong. So these ideas are, are raging in the West, but they're also moving East, especially as more and more Chinese people were moving away from all of this violence and discrimination and trying to find a safer place to be. Um, New York didn't end up being that place because these ideas followed and um, uh, Chinese people in New York were facing attacks, um, just general um, harassment and degradation um, the press and and from other people on the street.
2: Yeah, and this leads to the Chinese Exclusion Act, doesn't it? I mean, they actually, they make a political point. It it becomes, it reaches a kind of crisis of crux and laws are passed. So tell us about the Chinese Exclusion Act.
3: Right. So that was, um, the first one was passed in 1882. And it really, um, uh, it it brought together Democrats and all but the most radical Republicans um, sort of united in this act. Radical Republicans recognized anti-Chinese sentiment as a form of racism, but most, most of, um, of both political parties really joined together um, with uh, the Chine- against, against Chinese immigrants. Um, so that act passed in 1882, then it was expanded and made harsher in 1888. And I should say that both of these acts really focused on laborers. So intellectuals and scholars and merchants from China could come over, but it was laborers who were really kept out. Um, so with the passage of this 1882 Exclusion Act, people from China became the first undocumented immigrants in the U.S. This, this, this is the first like significant exclusionary immigration law.
2: So um, yeah, they're, they're, what does it exclude them from? They're not allowed to do what Exactly.
3: They are not allowed to even come to the U.S. Um, So so this also caused problems for um, people of Chinese uh, descent that were born in the U.S. And if they went to visit China, they had a lot of trouble coming back. Um, But but they're not supposed to even enter the U.S. And so that also caused problems for sailors in New York's um, port. Um, if there was a boat from China that had Chinese sailors on it, they weren't allowed to um, even t- touch American soil. They have to stay on the boat. Um, so, so this was um, this is a very high barrier for anyone who didn't have paperwork to show that they were um, a scholar or or an intellectual or a merchant or one of these um, these these higher class positions.
2: So, what's fascinating about this? this moment in 1883 then so it's a year after the first Chinese Exclusion Act so everything is mounting against the Chinese and yet here they are all crammed on a boat going up the Hudson on a bit of a jolly <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's it's a bit weird it's not what you'd expect at all. Um, and, hey, how did that come about?
3: Well you know the story got even weirder when I started looking at the people who were on the trip Mm, Um, And that was sort of how I figured out what what this even was. I was looking at the the invite list. And so there are Chinese American students, these adult students. Their teachers are there. Their teachers' families are there. But then there are also some very strange guests. There's there's a merchant, a white merchant, who spoke Chinese and um, Cantonese, I think. And uh, he was there. He was an advocate against Chinese exclusion. So he... He was an advocate for this community and he's on the boat. But, and then also on the boat is a Chinese uh, professor named Professor Chin Sun. So this professor is on board. And there's also um, the, the person who managed, managed the port, his name was Robertson. And so he is on this ship also. And I realized that he was in charge of um, enforcing the Chinese Exclusion Act. So the person in New York who is in charge of keeping Chinese laborers out, he's on this boat with someone that he's detained. He detained the professor xinqin Sun. Um, And so so these two people on on the opposite sides of the Exclusion Act are there on this boat along with um, a, a white advocate against exclusion. So this is not just an event that has to do with fun and games and getting out of the city um, and celebrating these these white women teachers, so I started to see this event as a way of pushing subtly against the Chinese Exclusion Act that had been passed the previous year.
2: Yeah, it's 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 clearly carefully orchestrated, and there are more layers involved, aren't there? Um, where where did they go?
3: They went to Iona Island, which is about a forty nine mile trip from Lower Manhattan, um, and. It's an island that now uh, has the archives for the Palisades Interstate Park Commission. It was a naval base for a while, but at this time, it was a former orchard and, uh, sorry, a, a, a vineyard that had been turned into an excursion grove. So that meant it's this, this green place. It's on the water. There are salt marshes all around. There's a, this kind of um, large cliff that's overhanging it um, on the other side of the Hudson River, um, and it's full of. Uh, it has a merry-go-round. It has a lot of space for sports and games. Um, so it's a place where um, many excursions would would dock, um, so that people from the city could kind of get out of the city and experience nature.
2: Okay, but the the you know having a um, a boatload of Chinese people that I'm sure their experience of that grove was 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 unusual, was different to what 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 others had done there. What did they get up to? Yep.
3: Yeah. Um, well, all excursions had music and food and games, but this excursion, um, there were very particular, um, of particular kinds of music. They're bringing Chinese music there, um, which, by the way, um, American listeners um, would always write about how much they hated Chinese music. So there wasn't there wasn't a great place to play this music in, in the city. Um, and so, being at Oni- Iona Island, having all of these acres of space, being far from the city, was a chance to play music as loud as they wanted. So um, they played music. They flew kites, like very realistic-looking uh, kites. Um, at one point, they had a kite shaped like a hawk, and two two hawks came to attack it. So, um, so it was that lifelike that that it would trick trick a real bird. Um, they're setting off fireworks, so. Um, one of the newspapers at the time said that they turned the atmosphere of the island blue with all of this, these these fireworks smokes. Um, and so that's those are the kinds of things that they were doing. They're having fun, but in a way that there wasn't really space for in the city.
2: Yeah. And they're having a fun in a Chinese way, aren't they? These are these are yes. kind of key aspects of Chinese culture. However, we you know we can't forget the presence of the white Christian women. Who, who are such a key part of this excursion. It's very much bound up in Christianity in the Sunday schools, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. There were some prayers and religious songs. And um, the way the newspapers reported it, which, of course, is very much through the white gaze. Um, but the, the, the journalists were saying that um, these women were sort of overseeing the games and, um, and, and making sure that nobody got too rowdy. Um, And so there is this level of kind of like surveillance and control and this idea that the presence of these white women is sort of shaping the behavior of the Chinese-American men who are participating in this this event.
2: Yeah. So, uh Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to
3: upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
2: Um, I, I found that whole story fascinating in its own right, but there's another side to it as well, because there's another trip, which I really, really <laughs> liked. So there's one that's not, it's like consciously different, isn't it? It's its not linked with Christianity. It's not linked with Sunday schools. And a group of Chinese decide to go and um, do, do it themselves, do their own trip, which I like. Tell me about that one.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I know about this trip through one of its organisers, whose name was Wang Fu. And he's a kind of famous guy in Chinese American history. He was the first person to call himself a Chinese American. And he started a newspaper in New York of that same name in 1883. He was on the first Sunday school excursion, which um, became an annual tradition, by the way. Um, So he was on that excursion, but he was not a Christian at all. Um, He had had terrible experiences with um, Protestant missionaries in China. He was very opposed to this. Uh, to the idea of of mission, of missionarism. And so he was part of an organization in Chinatown that was called the Ni Hop Hong. It was a mutual aid society, and uh, that meant that members would join together, pay a fee, and then if they got sick and couldn't work, um, or they died and needed money for burial, or the families needed money for burial, Um, that this mutual aid association could take care of them. It's kind of like a pre-insurance organization. Anyway, he's a member of this group um, and the group uh, organizes another excursion in 1888. Um, And this one um, Wong called a heathen picnic
2: a heathen anti- picnic. Yeah. <laughs> that's an amazing thing to call, to. Call a trip and, out.
3: <laughs> and I also love that he's saying this. You know, he is using language that was often leveraged against Chinese people. But he's like, no, this is a heathen picnic. It's for the anti-Christian element of Chi- of the Chinese. That's um. That's that's what we're doing. We're not. We're not a Sunday school excursion. We're Quite a clever to...
2: political move, isn't it? He's actually, he's embracing the, um, embracing the native language. Fair enough. That's exactly what we're going to do. <laughs>
3: exactly. And and he, and they do that more than once, actually, because, um, well, first of all, once this, um, once this boat reaches, uh, this, this, uh, this grove was in Staten Island, Bay Cliff Grove. Once they reach the grove, um, there are a bunch of speeches that members of the Nihapong gave. And one of the speech makers um, actually, Wong he called, um, he called the excursion uh, a festival to celebrate the birthday of Chinatown or the founding of the New York colony. And by saying the word colony, he's really using a word that was really important in the, um, in the lead up to the Exclusion Act, but he's using it another way. Um, in 1876, when Congress was debating exclusion, one representative said that people from China were, quote, by nature disposition and habits, incapable of assimilating within our laws and customs and tend to establish a foreign colony in the Republic. And so this idea that Chinese people would colonize the US, this was a founding fear that motivated the Chinese Exclusion Act. And Wang's like, you know, yes, we did it. Like, here's Chinatown, it's our colony. We're gonna take over this place. Like he was was playing with these fears.
2: Yeah, how important do you think it was that all this happened in a kind of a maritime theater setting? Was it was it you know uh, sort of fundamentally important to to what to what happened?
3: That's a great question. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about how the sort of area around New York was really crucial to the rise of environmental thought. There was in the early nineteenth uh, century. Wealthy people would take steamboats up the Hudson especially, but all around these watery areas. And they were developing ideas about the American environment being this uplifting, inspiring place that was really crucial to national identity. And at the time when this was happening in the 1820s, only very wealthy white people could access these important landscapes. And so what I'm seeing with the excursion industry in the late 1870s to the turn of the century is that working people, people of color, people from, uh, from all across the world, they're gaining access to these crucial crucial areas. Um, and, and that's uh, their, their landscapes, their waterscapes. And so to me as an environmental historian, I'm interested in what that means. Um, for for new groups to access places that are so crucial to to how the nation imagined itself.
2: Yeah, it seems to me that the, the, those paddle ships had become a sort of stage upon which um, significant political movements comments uh, had to be made. So if you were going to say something important, like uh, for example, okay, Chinese Americans have power of their own making. Um, then then they do kind of need to do it, or not necessarily need to do it, but it's certainly more powerful if they can make that point on the ships.
3: Yeah, I think that everyone involved with these excursions understood that the news would care about these events. And so um, journalists reported on the speeches, they reprinted some of these radical things that members of the Pom were saying. Um, and so it was a kind of platform, just the fact, like, this, it's more interesting to cover an event that's on a boat than something that's in like a, a, a lecture hall. And so I think that they were yeah. taking advantage of this for sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, you could get that with the imagery as well. I mean, the, the, the anti-Chinese imagery to start with is very shocking, isn't it, from that period. But also the way that the um, uh, the newspaper articles are illustrated, because a lot of them are framed around these beautiful paddle ships. It gives it a, a kind of a structure for them to actually work from.
3: Hmm. Right. I was struck by comparing images of the uh, the Sunday school excursion to Iona Island, comparing an image from that trip with just the generally horrifically racist caricatured images of Chinese Chinese immigrants. Mm. And so, when when journalists were drawing, or I guess illustrators were drawing, um, drawing the Iona Island excursion they were at least like, trying to capture individual features. They were trying to draw human beings. They weren't very good at it, unfortunately. The, the white people in the photo, in the image, are drawn much better. Um, but uh, but, but this, was, this image was still a, a bit very different than, than most of the images circulating at the time.
2: Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? When did these excursions end, and why?
3: Yeah, that is telling, too. Um, first of all, I should say the Nihapong excursion seems to have only happened once. So it was this kind of amazing active resistance, basically, where where uh, members of this organization are saying, you know, we don't need to bow down to anyone. We don't need to defer. Chinatown has its own power. Um, so that that was just one one amazing year. But the Sunday school excursions happened almost every year until 1907. Um, but there was one year when. The excursion didn't happen. And that was in 1892, right after the passage of the Geary Act, which extended the Chinese Exclusion Act for another 10 years. And the people who would have organized that excursion, they said, you know, we can't celebrate the daughters of the men who passed this act. Like, we don't know how, where we stand. They're also concerned that if anything went wrong on the excursion, um, that it would really provide fuel for people who hated them. Um, so there, there was a pause for that one year that sort of shows how tied excursions were to, to the, politi- the politics of the time. And then when these Sunday school excursions finally stopped um, was also a telling moment. So Sunday school excursions finally came to an end in 1909 when the body of a Sunday school teacher named Elsie Siegel was found in a trunk in Chinatown. And so after her body was found, the city was sort of plunged into chaos. There was a lot of concern about Chinese American men who attended these Sunday schools. Uh, In the past, the excursions had been covered as um, kind of sweet events between between uh, these kind teachers and these these childlike innocent students. It was sort of missing the, the, the fact that both of these parties were adults and they often did have relationships. Um, but once, once Siegel's body was found, um, this, this illusion totally shattered. And so because of that, the, um, the Sunday schools knew that they could not have an event like this. Um, in the past, excursions had been ways to sort of showcase friendship and good relations between um, Chinese Americans and white Americans. But the threat was just too big at that point.
2: Yeah yeah it's it's an extraordinary story isn't it and it's clear there's no there's, there was no escaping the, the xenophobia even when they're out on a nice day trip and also that this all comes comes down through through the maritime the stage of the maritime of the maritime world, Marika, thank you so much. Um, I've got so many more questions I want to I want to uh, ask and find answers to. I I want to do a PhD in this. It's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much, so much for your time.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you all very much for listening. As ever, do please find us online at snr.org.uk. Follow us on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and do check out our new YouTube channel. It's got some magnificent stuff on there, not least uh, our video we've made by bringing Nelson back to life from a plaster mask held in the collections of the National Museum of the Royal Navy. Uh, It really is quite an amazing thing to watch. Do please check that out. That's at the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube. And how can you help? Well, please leave a review on iTunes. But best of all, please just subscribe to the Society for Nautical Research and your subscription fee will go towards publishing the most important maritime history and to preserving our maritime past.